0: Hey friends, M. Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you are able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Welcome back, Tears. I'm so very glad you're with me studying right now. However, I do want to stop right here to share that I had an amazing summer break from the podcast during the month of July. Some much-needed time with family, and we even squeezed in a trip to Orange Beach, Alabama at the end of the month. Six days, seven people, eight states. Whew, that's a lot on so many levels, am I right? All that to say, it truly was quite a blessing, but now I'm back and very ready to dive into our studies in the beginning chapters of the book of Exodus together. Okay, so before we begin on our chapter readings today, how about let's officially dive in by first taking a closer look at the book overview to get our bearings for our study time to come. Oh my goodness, I so hope you are as excited as I am to once again open our Bibles together. So are you ready? Me too, friend. As far as overviews go, I believe there are some general understandings that we should have about this second book of the Bible. The English title of the book of Exodus comes from the Greek noun Exodus, which means a going out, exit, or departure. It's certainly a logical title given the primary storyline of this book is Israel's God-inspired and orchestrated departure, or exit, from Egypt. As we continue our studies, we will also see exodus, or exodus, is fitting because of Israel's behavior post-Egypt or after their rescue from slavery, as we will watch the newly freed nation repeatedly depart from the path of obedience, holy living, and true worship of God. Oh, goodness. Simply put, Exodus is a story of God's faithfulness to rescue and care for his people, a story of how he delivered the Israelites from Egyptian oppression, created a covenant relationship with them at Mount Sinai, and then dwelt among them in the tabernacle. In the God of Deliverance study by Jen Wilkin, she says this, The Exodus is a defining moment in the Old Testament for the Hebrews, as 9-11 is for us today, or Jesus' death and resurrection is for the New Testament. So very important. And if you recall from episode two, the How I Study the Bible episode, I mentioned the value in knowing the context of the book before we begin, as it will play a major part in understanding what it says and how it influences us. Truthfully, these details may not seem all that important, but they set the scene for reading it as it was meant to be read, which is the only way to truly understand it. And that's our ultimate goal in our study time together, right, friends? When thinking of the setting of the book of Exodus, we must consider who wrote it, who it was written to, when it was written, where it was written, and why. With that in mind, let's take a closer look at the introduction of the book of Exodus, as found in a few study Bibles and other resources I love to use to further clarify our study times in the weeks and months to come. In essence, help us tie together where we have been and where we are going. Genesis is a part of what is called the Pentateuch. Pentateuch comes from two Greek words, penta meaning five, and tuk meaning scroll or book. The Pentateuch is comprised of the first five books of the Bible, It includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It is also called the Torah, or the Law. Jesus referred to these first five books as the Law of Moses. Many scholars believe Moses had a hand in writing all five books of the Pentateuch. One book flows into the next, recording the biblical history from creation until the death of Moses. While the events in the book of Genesis took place before Moses was born, this history would have been preserved and passed down verbally from generation to generation. Then Moses, who lived in and was educated in the household of an Egyptian pharaoh and later instructed by God, wrote them down into the book of Genesis, most likely during the 40 years when the Israelites wandered in the desert. The storyline in Genesis begins at creation and concludes with the events leading up to the Israelites' time in the land of Egypt, just prior to their slavery there. So as I previously mentioned, in an effort to tie together where we have been in Genesis and where we are going in Exodus, listen to these excerpts from the New Living Translation Illustrated Study Bible Introductions, which describe what is happening in this way. Genesis is the book of beginnings, of the universe and of humanity, of sin and its catastrophic effects, and of God's plan to restore blessing to the world through his chosen people. God began his plan when he called Abraham and made a covenant with him. Genesis traces God's promised blessings from generation to generation, to the time of bondage and the need for redemption from Egypt. When Genesis was written, the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They had recently been released from bondage and guided through the desert to meet the Lord at Mount Sinai, where He had established His covenant relationship with them and had given them His law through Moses. Israel was now poised to enter the Promised Land and receive the inheritance that God had promised Abraham. While enslaved in Egypt, the Israelites had adopted many pagan ideas and customs from their Egyptian masters. See Exodus 32, verses 1-4. through they were influenced by false concepts of God, the world, and human nature, and were reduced to being slaves rather than owners and managers of the land. Perhaps they had forgotten the great promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or perhaps they had concluded that the promises would never be fulfilled. Before entering the Promised Land, the Israelites needed to understand the nature of God, His world, and their place in it more clearly. They needed to embrace their identity as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis provided the needed understanding. Moving on to the introduction for the book of Exodus in the New Living Translation Illustrated Study Bible, it reads, What does it mean to be in relationship with God, the ultimate being in the universe? How does one establish that relationship? What is that relationship like, and what does it take to stay in it? These are questions that people around the world have been asking since the beginning of time. The book of Exodus provided the ancient Israelites with answers to such questions, revealing not only what was required of them in a relationship with God, but also what God had done to make that relationship possible. The Exodus occurred sometime between 1450 and 1250 BC, when Egypt was arguably the greatest military and cultural power in the world. It was during this period of time that the Israelites departed from Egypt. God did not sneak His people out during a time of Egyptian weakness. He led them forth when Egyptian strength was at its height. The term Exodus derives from the Greek word exodos, which means the way out. Exodus 1 through 15 is about the Hebrews way out of Egypt. The rest of Exodus, chapters 16 through 40, reveals that the Hebrew people needed more than rescue from bondage in Egypt. They needed a way out of their sin and a way into fellowship with God. Exodus answers Israel's great needs to be set free from bondage in chapters 1 through 15, to know who God is and what he is like through the covenant at Sinai in chapters 16 through 24 and to experience fellowship with God through the tabernacle, in chapters 25 through 40. All of us have the same need to be set free, to know God, and to experience fellowship with Him. The opening chapters of Genesis depict a serious problem. God made the world and human beings for blessing, but the world fell under a curse. Humanity had become deeply corrupted, alienated from their Creator, and from one another. Death, violence, and confusion were rampant. Was there a way back to the blessing that God originally intended? In Genesis chapter 12 through 50, God's plan to restore the world begins to unfold. God chose Abraham and his descendants to be in a special covenant relationship with him, promising to make them into a prosperous nation through whom the entire world would be blessed. Abraham believed God despite the fact that his wife seemed hopelessly barren, and God soon began to fulfill his promises. As the book of Exodus begins, however, the validity of God's promises to Abraham is in question. Yes, Abraham's descendants had grown to a great number— But they were now slaves in Egypt, and Pharaoh, the mightiest king in the world, was committed to keeping them subjugated. As for the promised land, Abraham and his descendants had never actually owned any of it except for a burial plot, as found in Genesis chapter 23. How would a group of slaves, slated to be absorbed into the Egyptian underclass, ever inherit the promised land and become a blessing to the world? Could God keep his promises? Did he even want to? Did he really care for the Israelites, and did he even know what they were going through? Did the promises of Genesis have any real value? In answering those questions, Exodus moves us forward down the road to understanding who God is. God really does know our situation, and He values us. The Lord is in an altogether different category from all other gods. Exodus chapter 18, verse 11. He is revealed in Exodus as the greatest being in existence, superior both to human kings who think of themselves as gods and to all forces of nature. The Lord is the one true God. The people of Israel had spent hundreds of years absorbing Egypt's mistaken pagan beliefs. Now they would have to unlearn them. There are not many gods, only one. God is not the same as the natural world. He stands apart from the world, which he created. God rescues his people and calls us into a life of holiness in order that we may have a living, personal relationship with him. The tabernacle chapters in chapters 25 through 40 are not an add-on. They are what the Exodus was all about. Yes, God would keep His promise of taking the people to the promised land, but His goal was for them to live in His presence without being destroyed by His holiness. And that is what happened. Salvation is not merely the forgiveness of sin. God's goal for all of us is that having been rescued from the bondage of sin, we might live daily in the glory of His presence and manifest His holy character. Can you believe it? Only a bit of introduction so far, my friends, and look at how much clarity we are already gaining about not only Exodus, but also what we have already studied in Genesis. Wow. Let me pause this here for a moment to say that I realize we have been and will continue for a bit longer in today's episode on our overview of the book of Exodus. And that's because I truly believe it is oh so very important for us to have a framework of where we are headed and how it all fits into the big picture story of the entire Bible. Truthfully, the last episode of OOBT before the summer break was also spent giving a preview and overview of the book of Exodus. If you haven't already, please be sure to go back and listen to that one, too. Before we move ahead any further, though, I just have to share this about Moses' timeline as broken down for Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I found it so interesting that I wanted to take a moment to pass on these findings with all of you. We see the book of Genesis end, and then there was this time of slavery in Egypt before the opening of the book of Exodus. In the book of Genesis, we saw 24 generations covered from Adam to Jacob's sons. The first chapter and a half of exodus moves forward to cover a long amount of time in which the israelites are fruitful and multiply then following the first 80 years of the storyline in moses's life 40 years as an egyptian prince and another 40 years as a midianite shepherd my study resources indicated that the rest of exodus slows down dramatically to focus on what is happening and in telling of all that is to come in the remainder of all the books written by moses we will see that the israelites travel out of egypt as told in the book of exodus and that occurs over the course of two months. Then for the remainder of the book of Exodus, and throughout the entirety of the book of Leviticus, and the beginning portion of the book of Numbers, the eleven months spent at Mount Sinai are covered. Yes, you heard that right, my friends. An eleven-month period of time covered across parts of all three of these books. Leviticus outlines in detail how the newly freed Israelites can live in the presence of God and His holiness. We then move fully into the rest of the book of Numbers, over the course of 38 years and 4 months spent wandering in the wilderness, until stopping right before entering the Promised Land. The end of Numbers and throughout the book of Deuteronomy finds the Israelites in the plains of Moab, which is situated right outside the Promised Land. There they remain for the next 7 months as Moses shares all he has witnessed and gives his last words to this new generation of Israelites, explaining their history, the law, and challenging them to be different than the previous generation. The book of Joshua will then detail how they enter the Promised Land, However, before they do so, we see in Moses' timeline that there is a total of 40 years from Egypt to the Promised Land, 40 years from Exodus to Joshua. So I am wondering if you two had an aha moment here. I never realized before just how little time in the Bible storyline is jam-packed in these four books of the Bible. We simply must trust that there is critical information found in each one of them if God slows down to include all of this in such detail. As we have discussed many times before in our studies together— We can be assured that God doesn't waste a thing, right, friends? Whether that be words in the thin, crinkly pages of our Bibles or the joys and pains in our lives, the good and the hard. And how about all those references to the number 40? Wow! The number 40 in the Bible is often in reference to a period of trial or testing. More specifically, the number 40 seems to surround learning a crucial lesson, ending a negative practice, or adopting a new way of walking closer with God. Intriguing to consider. And please note that if you are a visual person like I am, I came across a PDF with Moses' timeline information that I will include in the show notes page as well. Because, well, once again, that is a lot of information to hear and process at the same time. So be sure to go check that resource out if you would like to see it. Now, with all these thoughts in mind, let me go on to share this reminder from Nancy Guthrie in her Lamb of God, seeing Jesus in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy book. She starts by saying, If you've done the previous study in this series, the promised one, seen Jesus in Genesis, then you could probably list many of the ways Moses wrote about Christ in the first book of the Bible. When Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 about the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, he was writing about Jesus. In his account of the ark in which Noah and his family found safety in the storm of God's judgment, he was writing about the nature of salvation found by those who hide themselves in Christ. When he wrote about God's call and promise to Abraham that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis chapter 12 verse 3, he was writing about the blessing available to people of every tribe and tongue through Abraham's future descendant, Jesus. When Moses took 13 chapters to tell the story of Joseph, the beloved son of his father who was rejected by his brothers and became the one person all people in the world had to come to for salvation, he was writing in shadow form about the greater Joseph, Jesus. We will see in this study as we make our way through the rest of the writings of Moses that he has much more to tell us about the Christ who would come 1,500 years after he wrote about him in his book. In Moses' account of his own life, as one who was born under the threat of death, left a royal palace to identify with his suffering brothers, and led people out of slavery, we will see the shadow of Jesus who left the halls of heaven to be born under Herod's murderous edict and lead his people out of their captivity to sin. In the unblemished lambs who died that first Passover night, so the firstborn son could live, we will see Jesus, God's firstborn, the Lamb who was slain, so that we can live, Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. As we witness Moses leading his people through the waters of the Red Sea unscathed, we will see Jesus, who leads us through the waters of death into everlasting life. In the pillar of cloud and fire that guided God's people, the manna that fed them, and the rock that gushed water for them to drink, we will see the light of the world, the bread of life, the living water, Jesus himself. As we listen to the law given by God on the mountain, we will hear its echo in the words of Jesus, who climbed up a mountain and spoke with authority about what it means to obey God from the heart. We will go over Moses' record of the design for the tabernacle in which God descended to dwell among his people, details that have no meaning apart from Jesus, who descended to dwell among his people. We will witness the establishment of the priesthood, those who were to be holy to the Lord and offer sacrifices for sin. In the priest's clothing and ceremonies and sacrifices, we'll see that Moses was preparing his people to grasp the great high priest, the Holy One of God, who offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice. We'll follow Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, where they repeatedly disobeyed and rebelled, seeing the contrast between them and Jesus, the true Israel, who went out into the wilderness for 40 days, meeting every temptation with perfect obedience. Simply amazing to consider the many, many ways we see Jesus in both Genesis and also upcoming for us in Exodus. As you may or may not already know, I am truly passionate about seeing Jesus as he is found throughout all of scripture, so you can be certain I was thrilled to find this summary for us to take a deeper dive into that. So valuable. Continuing on, as an interesting side note I discovered in my studies, here are some related perspectives I found in the New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible about what we see happening at the end of Genesis and moving on into the beginning of Exodus. At the end of Genesis, Joseph dies with these words of encouragement to his brothers as found in Genesis chapter 50 verse 24, which reads, Soon I will die, Joseph told his brothers, but God will surely come help you and lead you out of this land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The study note for Genesis chapter 50 verse 24 reads, Joseph was ready to die. He had no doubts that God would keep his promise and one day bring the Israelites back to their homeland. What a tremendous example. The secret of that kind of faith is a lifetime of trusting God. Your faith is like a muscle. It grows with exercise, gaining strength over time. After a lifetime of exercising trust, your faith can be as strong as Joseph's. Then at your death, you can be confident that God will fulfill all his promises to you and to all those faithful to him who may live after you. This verse sets the stage for what would begin to happen in Exodus and come to completion in Joshua. God was going to make Jacob's family into a great nation, lead them out of Egypt, and bring them back into the land he had promised them. The nation would rely heavily on this promise, as Joseph emphasized his belief that God would do as he had promised. Let's consider a few more Genesis and Exodus connections while we were already here at the end of the book of Genesis in our studies. While it is not in our Bibles, the actual first word of the book of Exodus in the Hebrew translation is the word and. And these the names of the sons of Israel, that is Jacob. When saying this, Moses would assume that we had just finished reading and would have right away flipped the page to start reading Exodus. Also, Moses would assume that as we read Exodus chapter 1 verse 1, we would recall Genesis chapter 46 verses 8 through 26, in which he had already detailed the names of Jacob or Israel's descendants who had previously went to Egypt the same descendants who have now been fruitful and multiplied as God had promised in Genesis in spite of the fall and sin of humanity God was faithful to allow people to fulfill their created design as God had instructed in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 through 28 they were fruitful multiplied and filled the earth God's promise to Abraham is proven true in our reading of Exodus God's children were as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore as mentioned in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, These promises made to Abraham and his barren wife Sarah were seemingly hopeless, but God acted by providing a son, Isaac, for them, and through him God went on to greatly multiply the future generations in spite of their sin and disobedience. This story in Exodus is about how God delivered on his promises from all the way back in Genesis to make the Israelites increase in number, fill the earth, and be made into a great nation many tiebacks to themes, promises, and so on to show how God's unfolding story and plan continue. Isn't that so touching to see, my friend, our Promise Keeper? More about our Promise Keeper who is always at work to come in this episode, I promise. Until then, though, from the very start of Exodus, we can recognize the Genesis language and promises pulled into Exodus. This, this right here, my friends, is why I say all the time how important it is for us to read our Bibles chronologically— to understand this big-picture story that's unfolding, because God is very specific in making sure we see patterns, threads, and themes and how it is all one story, God's story, both then and now, as it is also the story that God chooses to place us in today, too. Just amazing. Beautiful, even. Moving on, I also want to share this interesting perspective from Jen Wilkin about a birth narrative or a birth story theme found throughout the book. I've heard her develop this idea in several places, including in her God of Deliverance study, and also a She Reads Truth podcast episode for week one in the book of Exodus. Of course, I'll link them in the show notes because you may just want to take a deeper dive into this one on your own. Anyway, Jen shows the idea that a family goes into Egypt and 400 years later a nation emerges, the birth of the nation of Israel. As a bit more development of this idea, Jen describes how we see the nation of Israel delivered out of Egypt into the wilderness— or then God does what you do with a newborn. He answers its cries with sustenance and gives the law to that child. He trains up the child in the way it should go. When reading the New Testament or as Christians, we often say I'm born again, delivered from sin, but we don't often think of where those words are coming from. Wow. I wish we had more time to explore this, but as I mentioned, I included some links in the show notes if you would like to study this birth story theme further. So fascinating to consider. Okay, friends. Now that we have a general overview of the book of Exodus, how about we begin our deep dive into chapter one? Exodus chapter one from the New Living Translation begins The Israelites in Egypt. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is, Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. In time, Joseph and all his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came to power who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, Look, the people of Israel are now outnumbering us and are stronger than we are. We must plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in their demands. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shiphrah and Puah. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the boy is a baby, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. What have you done? Why? Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. Okay, friends, let me read you a few insights I found in my New Living Application Study Bible before we continue on in our reading of Exodus chapter 2. Shifra and Pua may have been supervisors over the midwives, or else these two were given special mention. Hebrew midwives helped women give birth and care for the baby until the mother was stronger. When Pharaoh ordered the midwives to kill the Hebrew baby boys, he was asking the wrong group of people. Midwives were committed to helping babies be born, not killing them. These women showed great courage and love for God by risking their lives to disobey Pharaoh's command. Another note in my NLT Life Application Study Bible, this time for verses 17-21, through reads, Against Pharaoh's orders, the midwives spared the Hebrew babies. Their faith in God gave them the courage to take a stand for what they knew was right. In this situation, disobeying the authority was proper God does not expect us to obey those in authority when they ask us to disobey him or his word. The Bible is filled with examples of those who were willing to sacrifice their very lives in order to obey God or save others. Esther and Mordecai, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these are just some of the people who took a bold stand for what was right. Whole nations can be caught up in immorality, racial hatred, slavery, prison cruelty. Thus following the majority or the authority is not always right. Whenever we are ordered to disobey God's word, we must, as it reads in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, obey God rather than any human authority. Consider the Nazis and Jews during World War II as just another example. Whoa. Let's stop here for a moment to truly think about the fact that the midwives were said to have feared God more than Pharaoh. This is an all-powerful king of an empire who is brutally oppressing a whole people group right in front of their eyes. And yet they feared God more than this Egyptian king. How about we lean in here a bit, shall we? I don't know about you, but the more I think about that, the more intrigued I am for sure. The midwives no doubt feared the king and his punishment if they failed to obey, but their fear of God was greater. We frankly must acknowledge your incredible acts of courage. Simply amazing. Moving on, we read that Pharaoh just kept ramping up his infant side a notch with him instructing to have all Hebrew baby boys thrown into the Nile River which is interesting because my studies indicated that the Nile River was seen as a place of life, as life-giving, in the Egyptian culture, and now it will be associated with the death of many Hebrew baby boys. But what is even more interesting to come, spoiler alert here, is the fact that the Red Sea will become a place of death of the Egyptians, while also a place of deliverance for the Israelites. More on that later. Truthfully, God just loves to turn things upside down, and we will see more evidence and proof of that in just a few more chapters. Continuing on in Exodus chapter 2 in the New Living Translation, it begins. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance, watching to see what would happen to him. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the river bank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. Moses Escapes to Midian. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who had started the fight. The man replied, Who appointed you to be our prince and judge? are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid, thinking everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard about what had happened and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. When Moses arrived in Midian, he sat down beside a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters who came as usual to draw water and fill the water troughs for their father's flocks. But some other shepherds came and chased him away. So Moses jumped up and rescued the girls from the shepherds. Then he drew water for their flocks. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked, Why are you back so soon today? An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds, they answered, and then he drew water for us and watered our flocks. Then where is he, their father asked. Why did you leave him there? Invite him to come eat with us. Moses accepted the invitation, and he settled there with him. In time, Ruel gave Moses his daughter Zephora to be his wife. Later she gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, for he explained, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. Years passed, and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on his people of Israel and knew it was time to act. So, just to reiterate what we have seen happening here in the first two chapters of Exodus, it actually sets the stage for the rest of the book. As Israel expands into a great nation and fulfilling God's promise to Abraham as found in Genesis chapter 2 verse 2, Pharaoh oppresses them and seeks to stop their growth. The verses at the end of chapter 2 describe how God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. These verses prepare us to see God act further on his promises to the patriarchs and bring Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. It is now time. Oh my, did you catch that last part from verses 24 and 25, my friends? God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. Heard, remembered, looked down, knew. Yet another instance of God's timing. An example of how when it's not God's timing, you can't force it. And when it is God's timing, you can't stop it. So touching especially when we consider the implication we discussed at length in OBT's previous episode, episode number 43, regarding the amount of time between the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus, the length of God's silence in the Israelites' slavery in Egypt. As I mentioned in that episode, whether the timeline of the years leading up to the Exodus started after Joseph's death, or all the way back to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 verse 13, this we can know with certainty. Whether the wait was four hundred and thirty. 400, 139, 119, or even 109 years. Any time spent waiting on God is hard, feels extremely long, and often causes us to grow weary in the wait. But what we can know from these verses found in Genesis, Exodus, and other places in Scripture, what we can know with 100% certainty is that God is a promise keeper and actively working in the wait. Scratch that. God is most definitely at work in the wait, my friends. I promise He is. And we are about to see God begin his plan, in his timing, to fulfill his promises. In those years of slavery, he was at work, delivering on promises he had made, promise keeper, way maker, and soon to see once again, a miracle worker. The New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible Note for Exodus chapter 2, verses 23-25 describes God's timing in this moment, in this way. God's rescue doesn't always come at the moment we want it. God had promised to bring the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt in Genesis chapter 15 verse 16 and again in 46 verses 3 and 4. The people had waited a long time for that promise to be kept, but God rescued them when he knew the right time had come. God knows the best time to act. When you feel that God has forgotten you in your troubles, remember that God has a time schedule we can't see. This truth reminds me of an analogy I heard in relation to God's faithfulness. Crowds of people gather daily near Old Faithful in Yellowstone National Park to wait to watch the geyser erupt. These crowds are told the times to expect Old Faithful to erupt. Often the times come and the times pass without any sign of an eruption. Ten minutes, twenty minutes, sometimes thirty minutes or more, and the crowd is left standing there waiting for Old Faithful. Interestingly enough, nobody moves. Nobody seems restless. No one says it was a lie no one accused Old Faithful of a lack of faithfulness. Rather, everyone just stays and waits because they all knew that eventually Old Faithful would gush with a rush of water. In thinking about this, now consider how we treat God sometimes. We seem to have more faith in Old Faithful than we do in the faithfulness of our Father in Heaven, because God does not always come or come through on the schedule according to our clocks and calendars as we expect He will. And yet, One of the most significant things about the book of Exodus is the fact that even when God takes His time, God is still on time. God is faithful to remember His promises made in the past, long, long ago. What we know to be true in all of our studies in the Bible so far is that God is not going to let even one promise go unfulfilled. Am I right, friends? It's only a matter of time. God's time. Now, on to the birth of Moses as we just read in chapter 2. Where do we even begin with that? So much going on here. The Jesus Bible study note for Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, called Drawn Out of the Water, reads, Moses was born to parents from the house of Levi, which eventually became the priestly family for Israel. After three months, Moses' mother placed him in a basket to protect him from murder at the hands of Pharaoh. Like the ark that protected Noah, this small basket sustained Moses until Pharaoh's daughter found him. The daughter was ill-equipped to nurse a baby, so she called a Hebrew woman, the mother of Moses to nurse the child. Miraculously, God provided deliverance for the baby, but he did so through the very one who tried to destroy him. Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and was raised in Pharaoh's house. Moses' Egyptian name means is born, which sounds like the Hebrew word for draw out, thus testifying to God's deliverance of his ordained leader from the waters of the Nile. In a similar fashion, God protected Jesus at the outset of his ministry from the hand of Herod, who wanted to destroy any threat to his throne by killing all Jewish boys two years old and under, as found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Like Moses, Jesus was delivered by God from the enemy and was positioned to fulfill God's appointed plan for his life. Can you even imagine it, my friends? As a mother, or truthfully as any woman who cares for any child in her life, can you even imagine the struggle for Moses' mother to hide a newborn baby boy away for three months? These had to be the longest three months of her life. Imagine how you would tense up every time he cried or made any noise for that matter. Oh, goodness. And then, when she could no longer hide him, find a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproof it with tar and pitch, and then entrust Moses' life to the protection of God alone as she placed the basket on the Nile River. Placing him in this basket on the river is a bold, faith-filled move, and in an interesting turn of events, she is reunited with her baby. Only God, am I right? Goodness. But let's not forget another important detail about Jochebed. She still had to give up her baby boy a second time. Oh, the heartbreak. However, what we can see with certainty here is that God used her courageous act of saving and hiding her baby to begin his plan to rescue his people from Egypt, and he used her courageous act to eventually place Moses in the house of Pharaoh. Amazing. And while we are thinking about courageous acts and what God can do through our obedience, I'm wondering if you also noticed how in ordering the murder of all the Hebrew baby boys, it was said that Pharaoh's assessed daughters were not a threat to him. But by the end of chapter 2, we see not one, not two, three, or four, but five female deliverers in the beginnings of the book of Exodus. The two midwives are Israel's first deliverers, followed by Moses' mother and sister. And we even see Pharaoh's own daughter not only save but then raise the Israelites' deliverer. Moses is taken into the care of the very household that had ordered his death. Jen Wilkin in the God of Deliverance study says it this way, Before Moses delivered the nation of Israel, it was the women who stood in the gap to deliver the deliverer. Moses was a deliverer delivered by daughters, no less. Wow. Before we move on from this scene here, I want to point out a couple other interesting things to note. One being that this is not the first time we have seen in our studies that the birth of a child is an instrument used by God in his rescue plan. Isaac in Genesis, and even Jesus. Also, did anything sound familiar about the description of the basket Moses was placed in on the Nile? I'm hopeful that the reference to pitch and tar may be reminded you of the description God gave to Noah when constructing the ark back in Genesis. My research confirmed that the word used here for basket is the same word used for ark, and that word was actually only used 28 times in Scripture, 26 in the account of Noah, and 2 is found here in Moses' story. We must remember that Moses wrote both of the accounts so we can probably safely assume that he wanted us as a reader to piece these two accounts together. Both Noah and Moses and their arks passed through the waters of death, carrying them safely to the other side. Noah and Moses are both saved from a death on the water that was intended to kill and destroy to then become the beginnings of a nation of God's people. While writing this, Moses chooses his words so carefully to demonstrate God's patterns and plans. Rescue upon rescue in the story of Exodus for sure. That's a theme we'll see repeated again and again throughout the Bible's storyline. Before we read Exodus chapter 3, listen to this perspective of our prince of Egypt and shepherd of Midian as found in the New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible for Exodus chapter 3 verse 1. What a contrast between Moses' life as an Egyptian prince and his life as a Midian shepherd. As a prince, he had everything done for him. He was the famous son of an Egyptian princess. As a shepherd, he had to do everything for himself. He was holding the very job that he had been taught to despise, and he lived as an unknown foreigner. What a humbling experience this must have been for Moses. But God was preparing him for leadership. Living the life of a shepherd and nomad, Moses learned the ways of the people he would be leading and also about life in the wilderness. Moses couldn't appreciate this lesson, but God was getting him ready to free Israel from Pharaoh's grasp. There it is again, friends, preparation for our calling in the waiting, in the wilderness, in the suffering, in the seasons of feeling overlooked, gracious. Exodus chapter 3 begins, Moses and the burning bush. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you, and this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Now go and call together all the elders of Israel. Tell them, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me. He told me, I have been watching closely, and I see how the Egyptians are treating you. I have promised to rescue you from your oppression in Egypt. I will lead you to a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. The elders of Israel will accept your message. Then you and the elders must go to the king of Egypt and tell him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So please let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand forces him. So I will raise my hand and strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of miracles among them. Then at last he will let you go, and I will cause the Egyptians to look favorably on you. They will give you gifts when you go, so you will not leave empty-handed. Every Israelite woman will ask for articles of silver and gold and fine clothing from her Egyptian neighbors and from the foreign women in their houses. You will dress your sons and daughters with these, stripping the Egyptians of their wealth. Oh gosh, have you noticed the time, my friends? We are quickly running out of time in today's episode. With that in mind, listen to a study note titled, I Am, from the Jesus Bible. It begins... God provided his people with a name that denotes his uncaused, independent, and eternal character. Moses, faced with the unenviable task of asking Pharaoh for the freedom of the Israelites, asked God for his name. He knew that the Israelites would ask for the name of the one who gave Moses these instructions. God told Moses to call him, I am. He is and will always be. He owes nothing and no one for his existence. Rather, he is the supreme, uncreated, sovereign, and sole God of the universe. All things owe their being to him. Jesus used this same name to declare his identity during his earthly ministry. When the people argued about the relationship of Jesus to the promises God made to Abraham, Jesus defied their understanding by declaring that he is not merely one in a long line of those whom God uses. Rather, he is the I am. John chapter 8, verse 58. The immense nature of this claim caused many to attempt to stone Jesus because they knew the implications of this term. By using this term, Jesus announced himself to be God, committing the ultimate sin of blasphemy in the minds of his Jewish audience. They simply could not comprehend that this carpenter from Nazareth could be the very Son of God, in human form, to whom all people owe their allegiance and worship. Okay, as we are running out of time in today's episode, I promise to take a very deep dive into Moses' calling and his many objections in our next episode of OOBT. We will see the actually objected or protested against God's call four times, friend. Phew! That is a lot of resistance while in the presence of God. But before we are too quick to judge Moses, we should be sure to consider how often we too object or stall in the callings we know God is placing on our hearts, minds, and lives. With that in mind, and as an important side note here, if you have listened to OOBT for any length of time, you for sure know by now that Moses' call by God, and most especially God dealing with his objections to his calling— had a deep and lasting impact on this podcast coming to be, and even continuing to this day. Truthfully, that alone is certainly worth further development, not because it is about me or this podcast, not at all, friends. It is worth further development because it is about each one of us living into our calling by a personal God to fulfill our purposes in life. So, so important. There is definitely much more to come next time, my Bible study friends, but until then, please be sure to go to the show notes for links to previous OOBT episodes in which I discuss Moses, calling, obedience, and so on. I guess a bit of prep work, maybe. (laughs) As we are closing out our time together today, please join me in prayer. Father God, today we've read about just a few of the incredible stories found in the book of Exodus of your unfolding rescue plan to lead the Israelites out of slavery and into freedom. It's pretty mind-blowing. We see how you heard their cries when they were suffering under oppression. You saw, you heard, you remembered. You didn't just sit back. You took action and had a rescue plan, as promised long ago, to deliver them. Amazing. It reminds us that you're always there for us, too, listening to our prayers and ready to help us out in tough spots. We also read of how you called Moses to lead the way, and he followed your lead even when it got tough. We want to be like that, listening to your voice and being obedient no matter what. It's not always easy, but we trust that you will never leave us, never let go. And then that burning bush, what a moment. Just like you revealed yourself to Moses, we want to recognize those special moments when you're right there with us. Help us to not brush them off, but instead step up and take action, knowing you're guiding us. And your name, I am who I am. It's such a powerful reminder that you're our eternal, unchanging God. We need you as our source of strength and protection, as we walk through life's ups and downs. So, Father God, we ask you to help us, guide us, and protect us, just like you did with the Israelites. We want to grow closer to you as we journey through this wild thing called life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, friends, please be sure to head on over to the show notes and take a listen to the OOBT episode links found there to prep for the next episode. As together we'll sort through God's call on Moses' life. I can't wait. Plus, if you like this podcast, after you're done listening, could you go and leave some stars or a review even? Of course, five stars are my favorite, but you know. <laughs> oh, gosh. But in all seriousness, though, aside from personally sharing the show link with your friends and family, rating and reviewing the show is truly the best way to help others find out about our study times together. For that, I thank you in advance, my oop tears. This is M Ferry, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.